welcome to episode 27 of Everyone is Everything. Today's episode is with Tova Olson. Um, she's been teaching yoga and meditation for almost 20 years. She holds an MA in Religious Studies from the University of Gothenburg and specializes in yogic and tantric traditions, um, which makes even more sense because she wrote a book called Yoga and Tantra, History, Philosophy, and Mythology. She was so informative and so smart and interesting and um, just warm and uh, made a lot of these very deep wells of information accessible and understandable to where I could see the the many different um, access points to find kind of what avenue speaks to you um, within these traditions. So very cool. I'm very excited for you to hear it. And really, that's it. I don't have anything else to babble about. So enjoy Tova Olson. What a smooth start. What a smooth start. So thank you, first of all, for, for being here. This is this is uh, an honor for sure. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's uh I'm actually recording this before work. So it's 6 a.m. here. Uh, <laughs> so if I like nod off, it's it's not you. But I did I did get eight hours, so I'm I'm good. Um so how are you feeling? Let's just start there. I'm feeling good. I have my last, well, my last proper birthday actually today because my kids are going on summer holiday tomorrow and I will still be working, but I'll also spend a lot of time with them. So well, that's yeah, fun. it's going great. We have lovely weather here in Sweden, which is not that common. Oh, okay. <laughs> so yes, feeling energized. That's, that's awesome. Um, yeah, and I, it's funny because, you know, I'm, when I reach out to somebody, you know, sometimes, you know, I'll have someone in mind or I'll see, you know, follow you on Instagram and I, I see a lot of your posts and I think about it for a while, you know, I, I let it sit and then, you know, in like a fury, I'll just message like the people that really like just kept coming up. Right. So I did that with you. And then as it approached, I, because I, I do research, but I try to keep it kind of loose so I don't have too stringent of a guideline. And as I, you know, went through your posts again and was looking at everything, I was like, there's so much information. <laughs> like, it's like when you go on, uh, like you go to the grocery store and there's too many choices and you can't pick anymore. <laughs> I feel like your level of knowledge is that where I'm just like, I don't even know what to pick because I feel like you could go so deep in so many different avenues. Thank you. Um, but I do think um, because, you know, just yoga, tantra, like in general, are words that we hear, but we don't often hear them in the context in which you talk about, you know, like I, I definitely will have listeners who know of yoga in the sense that, you know, they're coworkers or they do yoga in the, some class and they do their thing and they, they, they leave and that's that. So maybe we could start with just some basic 
definitions and like what what these words what they carry more than just what we've seen in the west oh wow you really <laughs> put me on the spot here it's uh -oh. you know it's an enormous subject of course right and uh, well i didn't really prepare for this interview because we did this spontaneously yeah this and point. that's that's totally um, fine let's it's it, but... totally conversational but the first thing that I thought about when you said, you know, people do yoga is that one of my teachers used to say, well, we don't do yoga, yoga do us, right? Mm. Yoga is the state that we enter through the practice of asana or pranayama or meditation, for example, or a combination of those things. Um, having said that, as a scholar of religion, I will say that historically yoga has been several different methods and also several different goals so they're not wrong to say that they do yoga and they're not to say that they reach this they're not wrong to say that they reach the state of yoga but it's both of these things mm. and as i argue in in my book that just came out this year in english though it came out in swedish a couple of years ago um i argue that you know when we ask what yoga is we really have to think about for whom and mm. in in what age and in what context, right? So yoga is so many different things for so many different people, which doesn't mean that we can just appropriate the word and use it in whatever way we would like to, right? right. Which is something that we need to problem problematize a little bit too. And the same goes for Tantra. So when Mark Singleton, that you probably know about, um, scholar of yoga, when he wrote his yoga body in 2010, he argued that, you know, yoga is just a homonym. It's a word that sounds the same. It's spelled the same, but it's not really the same, you know, in the modern Western context that it used to be in, well, the classical yoga of Patanjali, for example. And we can say the same thing about Tantra, that what people think about when they think about Tantra today in the West is not what people would think about when they thought about Tantra, you know, a thousand years ago in India. But having said that, there is not, you know, one single essential unbroken tradition of yoga or of tantra. There's always mm. been a multitude uh, of different traditions and practices. So yeah, it's a complex question. Right. Mm. And it's it's interesting because like you said, I mean, you can't, we couldn't possibly see it through the lens that the people who did it a thousand years ago it could could see it through like we have to see it through our social context yeah. and um in that sense i mean and it's interesting since you've studied religion um because a lot of people i think have kind of thrown away the baby with the bathwater in terms of religion you know uh, more spirituality like a lot of people say all right well you know where's the practical use of this in today's age I'm, and since you're so immersed in it from like a personal standpoint, how do you feel like it's got practical use? Like, how does it impact you? You know, the practice of yoga, you mean? Yeah. Or any, any spiritual, any, any religious study, any, but yoga in particular for you. Yes. Yes. Um, well, you know, again, a huge subject, I, I guess, know. you know, I was, um, I always been interested in religion and in artistry, you know, and the combination of them, I guess, 
And that is why Saraswati and Matangi are my Ishtadevitas in a way, because you know, they're the goddesses of the word of creativity. And I was always a child that loved to read and that loved to write and that used, um, you know, felt the power of the word. Uh, and of course, reading a lot that, that kind of leads you into the road of studies. And what I always went for as I grew up in the library, and I was no longer so interested in just storytelling and you know the, the usual stories, I, I would always venture towards the section of religion uh, because then there wasn't really so much talk about spirituality. Right? And mm -hmm. so I would study the different religions in the world. And I guess I was doing a lot of comparative uh, religious studies before I knew what mm -hmm. that was. And then, of course, since I was, schooled, I was schooled in in studies of religion in Sweden, um, you know, um, it's very forbidden to do comparative religious mm, studies in Sweden. And so I was schooled into not thinking that way, but to think about the particular, to think about, you know, what separates and what is particular about different religions. I think there is kind of like a a turn towards comparative studies coming again now in religious studies but it has been quite forbidden for at least 20 years or or um so i would say for me as an individual it's hard to imagine life without religion or without spirituality even though i'm a i'm a very critical thinker mm -hmm. and i doubt a lot and i have you know, a lot of critical ideas about power and the use of power and how people have used, um, you know, the religious doctrines to uh, abuse each other in terrible ways. Um, personally, I'm not, a, I'm, I'm not a person that could find meaning in my life without thinking about divinity. Mm -hmm. it, for example, to just give you a really, um, you know, straightforward example, it's positively impossible for me to change a habit, like, for example, how I eat or anything like that, without thinking about the divine. It's very easy for me to do a fast if it's part of a sadhana, if it's something that is devoted to the goddess, for example. But I could never bring myself into doing some kind of diet for the mm. sake of my own body, in a way. Mm -hmm for the sake of some type of, you know, human ideal or normative beauty or something like that. Uh, it's very easy for me to devote myself, to sacrifice myself when I'm doing it for the divine. And it's very easy for me to put in a lot of work when I feel like it is guided work. It's something that I'm supposed to do. And if I don't feel like it's dharmic work, mm -hmm. I don't really see the point in doing that. So I guess I'm I'm very much um, um, guided by intuition and and inspiration in my daily life, just in the work that I do, in the posts that I place on Instagram, mm -hmm. uh, in the sadhanas that I do, and um, it's very much an integrated part of my life to do meditation and asana on a daily basis, and also to pray and to study sacred texts and to do puja, of course, if you would look around now, you know, I don't have as many um, religious paintings or, you know, paintings of deities or murtis or so as I used to have, but there is still plenty, you know, and, and uh, you know, I don't treat the murtis or 
um, the iconographical forms as used art. Well, I treat them as persons, you know, so they need quite a lot of time. <laughs> right, right. And <laughs> I mean, them. yeah, yeah. And, and kind of saturating your experience with a devotional um, intention does seem like it changes the perspective totally. <laughs> like, yeah. It seems like it would, you know, it, and it's, it's so interesting. I want to move back just a little bit, even though there's so much good stuff in there. Uh, what, what I found interesting initially in your studies is that you, you know, the comparative religion that you kind of stumbled into, um, when you started to see, um, the similarities, as opposed to the differences. I just find that so interesting because I feel like a lot of time, myself at least, and others that I've talked to, that seems to be a, a, a crucial point when you start looking at different things and starting noticing like a similar thread. You know, a lot of, you know, obviously there's very specific details that are different, but this, this, um, it, it kind of lays this, um, blanket underneath it all that kind of holds all of it and then I feel like it's easier to step into as opposed to pick your pick your side you know what I mean um so I just I really like that idea um and when you said that and it, you know how we we focus on the differences and I feel like there's definitely value there but seeing the similarities I feel like is also super valuable well, I can see that you have Ramakrishna behind you on the wall. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was a great yes. comparativist, of course. And I mean, this is very common in contemporary spirituality to think this way, but it's mm -hmm. also a part of mysticism, right? Mm -hmm. So I think, I mean, the problem if we generalize, if we, if we try to just look for the similarities, is that we can engage in appropriation, you know, mm -hmm. and use uh kind of you know pick and choose the little parts that suit us from different traditions without really gaining proper knowledge mm. or proper respect for the differences in the different traditions and i think that is something that we need to be careful about and at the same time i think that all of us that has um a drawing a longing towards mysticism have the experience that you speak about there. Mm -hmm. That we do see that there is um, a lot of, you know, common common traits. For example, over here uh, on one of my altar tables, I have uh, a great painting of Kali, but then I also have Mother Mary, just like mm -hmm. you have there on the wall behind you, mm -hmm. because I was just in Serbia uh, last week and I ventured into this great cathedral, and I was mm -hmm. so amazed by the icons in there and the devotion in that uh, Orthodox Christian milieu. And so I had to bring a, a couple of icons uh, mm -hmm. with me home. And my daughter is a great um, Christ Bhakta. She really mm -hmm. has great devotion for Jesus, which she didn't get from me. But I can mm -hmm. see that that is something that, that is very much alive in her. And that resembles the devotion that, that I recognize in myself as well. Mm -hmm. you know? Right. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I mean, that speaks to me, too, because I have some Kali back here yeah. with my Marys. But I... It actually brought up another thought that that I've I, I've considered um, similar to you know kind of picking from the top of a lot of different things as opposed to going very deeply into a you know any tradition or just understanding in general. 
I've noticed that even with practices, and I'm curious what your thoughts on this, because, um, you know, I, I kind of get hyper-focused, you know, I, 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 I attend a Vedanta society in my, in St. Louis, and so Ramakrishna, and this is where I've kind of focused all my attention for the last year and a half or so, which is not a long time. I mean, that's like, <laughs> like square one, like, I mean, barely at square one. I think I'm outside of square one, but uh, <laughs> regardless you know it's it's you know it's where i've i've kind of zoned in and uh you know i talk to the swamis there and they give me direction and then i kind of that's what i stick to i'm like okay this is the direction you know i still mary is still there and i can understand the the value of the other symbols anything that calls to me but with practices in particular um you know i have a particular practice and i try to stay as in line with, you know, as I'm, you know, the swamis that I talk to, um, you know, they explain it like this and I try to stay with this practice and I try to be as good as I can. I'm not perfect by any means, but then I'll talk to other people, um, that are into spirituality in general, and they'll be a lot looser with, they'll be like, well, I do it when I feel it. And I can like, I don't want to like be too tight and too strict and all this stuff. And I think they're responding to the strictness of religion from a power place that we've seen in the West a lot. But I wonder sometimes if they're too loose, you know, I'm like, well, where is the, like, where isn't there, is there value in the, the rigidity of practice versus the like softness of letting yourself in and out of it, you know? Yeah, I hear you. Uh, what comes up for me is that according to Tantra, you know, freedom is only possible through discipline. Mm. Um, so I think that when people try to go for the freedom before the discipline, without the discipline, they're really used to falling into the same old patterns, uh, lacking freedom a lot of the time. And this, of course, is very subjective because Sometimes people have, as you mentioned, maybe been brought up in very rigid uh, religious frames. And so they need to feel that they can choose by themselves or that they, they don't get stuck in just one tradition or with one particular teacher and so on. But I think there's a Kashmiri stage, a tantric master right, that you might be familiar with named Abhinavagupta. And he used to say that like, you know, a bee travels from one flower to the next one, collecting the sweet nectar. You should be like this when you do spiritual practice. What he didn't mean, though, was that you should use, you know, sit down every single day and be like, ah, I wonder what new practice I'm going to do today. And just, you know, go to a, a next teacher every single week or so. But to get immersed within one particular tradition and then also feel free to visit other teachers or to move into uh, move on to another tradition when you feel like you're ready for them. So for me, it's always been about, you know, I had teachers and maybe I stayed with one teacher for seven years. Maybe I had several teachers at the same time for different purposes. Maybe I had one asana teacher and another meditation teacher, and then I had academic teachers and so on. Uh, but staying until you feel like I can't possibly stay stay any longer because this is not you know a healthy relationship perhaps maybe not all teachers that have really amazing knowledge are great people to be around mm. <laughs> a lot of us had that experience 
And so you stay for as long as you can to get the knowledge that you need to get from there and then leave respectfully right? if you need to leave. And then for me, it has always been the case, you know, you don't know my personal story so much, but I've been a single mother for 13 years. And now I live with my new partner since last summer, but I was alone with my kids for a long time. And, th and that means that I couldn't really even get out of my own house a lot of the time. Mm. You know, I was really stuck with my own practice. And so I felt the power of limitation in a way, uh, because I had a lot of dis discipline before that. But then my discipline was all about, you know, I want seven hours of practice per day. I want to devote my whole life to this. And then when I had these children, they took up so much of my time, right? So that that little, little time, maybe it was 15 minutes, maybe it was half an hour, maybe then it progressed to two hours. But I dedicated all of that free time that I had to practice because I knew that that was what was important for me. And my experience was that the teachers that I needed somehow miraculously showed up in Gothenburg or close to mm. where I was living so that I could, you know, get a little nutrition when I felt right. that I was drying out or that I didn't really have anything more to, you know, uh, work with, so to speak, in my practice. And so I've been fortunate, I've been blessed that way. Um, and I have faith that, you know, the right teachers will keep showing up, whether mm. it's academic teachers or spiritual teachers or, you know, life teachers, as my children very much are, mm. you know. But I would say restriction and discipline is something that is very much needed to get out of your sticky places and to get out of those, those habits that will keep you stuck in, you know, um, ways of hurting yourself, self-sabotage, so to speak, you know? Right. Uh, I don't know if that answers your no, question. No, it, it does. And it brings up other stuff for me too, mm -hmm. because I, uh, I'm in St. Louis, so I'm right in the middle of the United States. And for a long time, you know, I, I didn't really, you know, I don't know, St. Louis is not known for anything that notable, you know, we're not one of the big cities with all the cool stuff happening and whatever. And, uh, as I, as this sort of interest started unfolding and I, I went to, uh, Cali Mandir in Laguna beach, California. And, and when I met the, you know, Swami Bajnananda said, well, oh, you're in St. Louis. Well, you have one of, you know, the highly revered Ramakrishna order Swamis, right? Mm -hmm. 30 minutes from you. And similar to what you said, I, I I was like, oh, okay. Like, and I, I for one, for me personally, I needed a physical person. I needed somebody, some people that I could go to and be around to start to understand. I couldn't have figured it out just with books and YouTube videos that wasn't going to work. So when you speak of like, well, I think, the, you know, the teachers that you need will be in the space that you're at. I think that has a lot of uh, value for me. Cause I, I was like, I keep thinking that I'm like, okay, of course I'm in St. Louis because I needed to be near someone, you know? Mm -hmm. And it brings up another thing. And I, I wrote this down because it was in one of your posts and I thought it was so good. Uh, and it says, uh, and I think you'll hear why I brought this up, this connection or why it came up to me when you said it. Um, it says, on this path, the ordinary appears as extraordinary and the extraordinary as ordinary. Mm -hmm. um, I would love for you to speak on that a little bit, because I think you 
I just, it's so well said. It's very poetic and very mm-hmm. fun to say, but it, it does kind of capture like an essence of what the fruits may be of this kind of practice. Well, I wrote that uh, a few years ago, actually, on my website when I was doing Sadhana for Lalita Tripura Sundari, that I guess you are very familiar with, being a devotee of the goddess. So when doing Sadhana for Lalita, um, very different from doing Sadhana for Kali, even though, you know, in a way, they're two sides of the same coin. Well, you know, Kali will kind of <laughs> wrap, she will kind of, you know, undress you in a brutal manner, you know, and Alita will undress you in the most sensual manner, you know, it's, it's like mm-hmm. the cosmic stream striptease <laughs> process of being with Lalita. And so um, she's very much a goddess of imminence. She's also the goddess of the bliss of consciousness. But being with Lalita in a different way from when you are with Kamala or Lakshmi, who are also goddesses of the beauty of manifestation, you know, Lalita is even more subtle and she really takes you into um, the love for the manifestation and seeing how the divine completely saturates, completely penetrates the whole of mundane life, you know? And that's for me, as I said, you know, when I had my two children, it wasn't planned, you know? And I definitely didn't plan to become a single mother. And so I felt like, oh, now I have to give up my sadhana and my sadhana and my love for the divine is, is more important than anything. So I really struggled to integrate in a way. You know, even though I was always a person that was speaking about embodiment and, you know, loving dance, loving art, as I said, loving all of these practices that were very much embodied practices, I still had to go through that tantric journey, so to speak, of fully embodying, fully integrating what I was doing in my sadhana, in my physical life. And my kids really helped me with that. And also sadhana for Lalita, for example, used feeling into when you were quoting me there how how she is present in all the the mundane repetition mm-hmm. you know all the, the things that we go through on a daily basis cleaning this body again cleaning up after your kids you know the all of the cycles of repetition that the people in classical yoga or in the early jain and buddhism traditions they were really trying to break out of this mm this cycle of repetition known as samsara, right? And when you enter into practice with the goddess, you start feeling, well, she is that cycle. She's, of course, also the extra piece. She's all of the unexpected stuff, all of the Mm -hmm. things that is just around the corner that makes us feel like, I don't know what's coming next, you know, good or bad. It's all in her hands. But then also, you know, all of these repetitions that we could easily feel like, man, I don't feel like doing this again. And she adds all the beauty to those things. And that's why I said, you know, all of the mundane things become magical in that way. And then all of the things that we would previously uh, think are very magical, like when we have visions or we have experience of Kundalini and so on, it really doesn't become such a big thing anymore. You know, I I was using an intellectual workshop in Italy about a week ago with other scholars. And there was 
um, a guy there working on the paranormal and he had never had any paranormal experiences, but he was so into this and he really mm -hmm. wanted some cool experience, you know? Yeah. And I was like, you know, you only say that because you've never had one. Yeah. People that have experiences like that, they would rather not have them, you know, because most of the time they're terrifying. Mm -hmm. And even when they're not terrifying, you don't go around, you know, collecting them. <laughs> like right. prices on the shelf, you know, you don't go around speaking about them. Not just because the tradition says that it's forbidden and so on and that it will stop you in your progress or whatever. Just because it's not that interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, I know that, um, I can't remember his name right now, Rudy, you know, the American teacher who was a student of Muktananda, I think. He used to say that well, when you have spiritual experiences, it's a work order. You know, it's not it's not something that you collect or you hold on to. It's something that you're asked to do something with, you know, something that you're asked to progress with. You know, and so I don't know how we really got into. <laughs> oh, I don't. It doesn't matter how we got into that. That was good. That was whatever reason that made us there. That just clicked with me. That was a very because I've never heard of it like a, a work order. You know what I mean? Like because. You know, a lot of times we see these things, you know, in hindsight, we're like, well, you know, that led me to this and that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But to see it kind of in that moment when you have some synchronicity or something that feels, yeah. you know, uh, magical, but then, mm -hmm. like you said, eventually doesn't really, it kind of makes sense that these things will come. But to see it as a work order, to see it as like, okay, yep, I just got my assignment and this is the direction we go. Like, that's, that's pretty cool. I think I had periods in my practice where a lot of cool things were going on. And then I also had very calm, uh, almost desert like, you mm -hmm. know, state. I'm kind of in a state like that right now because I'm so focused on my academic work, you know, and I'll still do my practice every day. Um, but I felt maybe a lot of things have become normalized for me. And so mm -hmm. I just take that presence, that sweetness for granted in a way you know not taking it for granted but it's normalized mm -hmm. it's integrated um and also i'm not really going for those experiences mm -hmm. because i know that a lot of times when i had them i was also not in great company you know i was mm -hmm. also in the company of people that were really spiritual seekers in the way that they wanted those cool mm -hmm. experiences uh, and they weren't necessarily so integrated or able to stay in a relationship or to really, you know, be in this world and be of use in this mm. world. And that is something that, I mean, uh, after I do my asana practice every day, you know, I bow down to Shiva and then I bow down to Lakshmi is asking mm. me to fulfill my dharma and, just, you know, to be in good relationship. So I asked wow. to be in good relationship with you, for example, mm -hmm. today when we're in this conversation, not only to have the gift of Saraswati to be eloquent, but also used to be in good, useful relationship to the world and to you at this. Right. This yeah. Moment. Because I mean, without that, like if it shouldn't just stop. Yeah. At the, at this, I mean, not to separate spiritual from your, you know, the world, but like you said, to be, you know, to me and to the, you know, be of value that extends to the world and to the people around you. I think now we're talking about why, like what's a practical, like 
what what's what ripple effect does this have to the actual world and i think that's pretty valuable and i like hearing i like hearing about your practices because you know like i said when it comes to specific practices i'm very new you know what i mean i'm very just kind of experiencing things over the last couple of years um meditation and stuff has been around longer but not in a way that was that started to kind of hone in on something and i really like your analogy about the desert like times yeah. <laughs> because because sometimes you know because those you know when you, when you have these moments that don't that just seem otherworldly and then they stop and then you're like well i guess i was wrong i guess uh, i was just being silly and this is stupid and i shouldn't do any of this and whatever or whatever and especially even going back to your work order thing it's like no you you already got you got the thing. So now, now we keep going. And that kind of clarifies a lot for me because I think the doubt, and I think you mentioned it earlier, the doubt seeps in so easily. And even yeah. when you, when you talk, uh, you know, you said, you know, I want to do seven hours a day and then 15 minutes up to two hours, you know, working up to two hours. I'm like, I'm not doing two hours. And my brain immediately goes, oh, well, you're faking it. Like you're not doing it right. You're doing it. You know, all these things start creeping up. And then you just want to say, all right, you know what? I'll just watch Netflix because that is, you know, so it's, we, we so quickly like jump off because, um, you know, this idea of what we're supposed to do and, you know, um, I'm going to fail at this or whatever it is. So it's, it's interesting to hear how your practice has fluctuated and maybe you could speak on doubt a little bit, because since you've seen, like, you've got so much experience in this wealth of knowledge you know, if someone's listening and they're kind of interested, it could be intimidating. Hmm. And I think, you know, we have to kind of distinguish between doubt and discernment in a way, you know, because discernment known as Viveka in the yogi traditions and Tarka in the tantric traditions, this is something that we really develop with practice. And so it's not that we ever want to lose our critical mind or our power of discernment or discrimination when we practice yoga, which is something that is kind of happening in contemporary spirituality. There is not a lot of discernment, I think. So that's the first thing that I want to say, that that is something that we cultivate with practice. And then the doubt that you speak about, the thing that kind of pulls you towards Netflix, thinking that, you know, what's the use of spiritual practice? That is something else, right? Mm -hmm. And for me, I had a lot of doubt. Um, mostly because I did a lot of research on yoga communities where there was sexual abuse. And so this is something that I always, you know, stood up against really strongly. And when I looked at all of these communities, I felt like, you know, what is really going on? You know, because people had honest spiritual experiences in these communities and there was also all of this abuse you know so that made me doubt a lot and I had a lot of conversations with my teachers and I still do about these things and in the academic milieu as well but I always felt like every time I had a strong doubt regarding my practices at the same time I just kept on practicing more and more intensely in those days there was like Maybe if my devotion wasn't really there, my physical practice was still there. Something was still always, you know, 
dragging me back to the yoga mat or dragging me back to the meditation pillow. And maybe it's because I've been doing this for 20 years. It's just an integrated part of my daily life. Or maybe there is just something there that is in a way always proving itself to me, regardless, you know, the human factor, so to speak, mm -hmm. or we see all of, you know, the things that are going on in the name of spirituality and religion. I could use never, as you said, throw out the baby with the bathwater. But mm -hmm. I always argued for nuance, for paradox, for be, being able to stay with the trouble in the way that you, you see that there is this, but there is also this, you know? Both of these things are going on at the same time. And I, I, that is something that I really uh, encourage people to, to think about when it comes to all of these different scandals and other things that are going on in, in spiritual communities to, to not um, think so simply about manners, mm -hmm. but to, to be able to see that, well, you know, people had all of these high experiences, maybe experiences of Shaktipat or transmission or, you know, all different, and, and they weren't wrong. They weren't hallucinating it, but that was going on at the same time as the spiritual abuse. So this led us into something, a completely different, you know, conversation. But I think, you know, doubt is, is very helpful. I know I wrote, you know, probably 20 years ago or so that doubt is very useful, but it's not a vehicle. It will not mm. bring you forward, right? Mm. <laughs> so sometimes you have to kind of say, and, and question yourself, like, what direction am I moving in? But then you also have to kind of get rid of doubt to be able to move in any type of direction. And then maybe you have to linger a little bit again, and then you move, right? But I think um, what I really want to point towards is the power of discernment. And that, you know, the power of discernment will always make you... Um, able to choose between what is true and what is not true and what is the correct thing to do and, and the incorrect thing to do, so to speak. <clears throat> I know some spiritual teachers said, you know, even an enlightened person puts the shoes on his feet and the hat on his head, you know, mm. even if we have the, um, even if we have the embodied experience of oneness, uh, we still do what is proper for a human being to do, you know, and that is part of the discerning process. I think for me personally, doubt will always be there. It's just part of my constitution. I'm, I'm you know, an academic. I'm a critical mm -hmm. person, uh, but I don't think it will ever, it will ever stop me from practicing. At least it hasn't this far. Mm. You know, so I think um, there is something that is cultivated through practice known as shraddha, right? the deep okay. faith, a deep trust. And that is something that I really associate with the goddess Lakshmi as well, you know, mm -hmm. Santosha, contentment and Shraddha, that deep faith, not only that you feel the value in yourself and the value in all other beings, and that you feel that you are taken care of on a deeper level, but also that you feel that deep confidence, that deep faith in the practice. So in a way, you know, you can't turn away from it, just like you can't turn away from eating or loving your children or whatever it might be. It's just, it's just there. Wow. I think this is also connected to having done Ganesha sadhana, if we get into practice. Because when you do sadhana for Ganesha, the root of the body, you know, the root of the body is very much connected to survival. 
um, the basic necessities, so to speak. And so when we connect our sadhana to the root of the body, it, in a way, it makes our sadhana as necessary for us as eating or sleeping or whatever it might be. And that's why I think it's it's very important for people also to connect to the base of the body and to connect to Ganesha, not only because he's playful and, you know, there's so many things to say about uh, about Ganesha and what he brings to sadhana, but also that that sense of that sadhana is as elemental as other, you know, necessities in life. Right. And, you know, I, I've I've never really thought about that in terms of Ganesha and the the base needs physically as well and i mean I, I don't go you know i don't have a depth of knowledge there but um and that that's really interesting because it connects with the thing you were talking about earlier about embodied practices like these body spirit things that aren't as separate as we say we we, we say they are mm-hmm. um and you know because yeah it's I'm kind of processing all that as we speak, as you can see in my face, probably. But, you know, because when I'm hungry, my stomach growls and I, I need to eat. You know, when I'm tired, my eyelids, you know, my eyes get watery and I lay down or whatever. Um, and it's almost as if the the spiritual side, we just we aren't as familiar with the or in tune with the the stomach grumbling of spirituality exactly. yeah. you know in terms of but when i'm like oh why am i feeling like this well maybe you're mm-hmm. disconnected from the mm-hmm. the thing the thing that's in you and in everything else and maybe Absolutely. that's you know and maybe getting in tune with that you know mm-hmm. knowing how it feels to be disconnected would be you know and i put it on doubt and then i say well whatever let me just walk away for a minute you yeah. know when would that would be like if I felt my stomach grumbling and then I went to the fridge and I said, well, never mind, I just won't eat. It's like, no, this is the time to, <laughs> this is the mm. exact time to sit down, mm. you know? And so when you say you just kept this practice going, you just kept physically doing it. Mm. And I think long before I knew about Lalita Tripura Sundari, who is also, you know, the goddess of desire or, Hanuman, who is very much connected to bhakti and also devotion and longing. And so all of these deities that are connected to longing, I always had the sense that um, my longing is grounded in another type of longing. I knew that when I wanted, you know, sweetness, when I wanted a piece of chocolate, that's not really the sweetness that I craved, even though I still eat a lot of chocolate, you know, Mm -hmm. no no doubt about that. Or when I want, you know, a new pair of shoes or whatever it might be, I'm always looking for, you know, like my teacher, Sala Kempton, usually says, you know, what is it that you think that you're going to get when you get what you want? Mm. So what what is, you know, that longing behind that longing behind that longing? You know, in the in the Srividya tradition, we will say that that is Arita Tripura Sundari. What we really long for is that bliss of consciousness, is that, you know, that internal, that eternal sweetness which is the goddess, you know, and that, you know, desire, well, the goddess can always move in two directions, right? She can bind you and she can liberate you. So you can be bound into compulsive action, into compulsive desire, into just repeating your compulsive uh, patterns of action. But you can also just be liberated into the longing for God. Mm -hmm. And so I think I, I felt from a really early age that I had a deep longing 
that I was restless, you know, I wanted to travel, I wanted to dance, I wanted to this, but I, pretty early I felt like, you know, this longing that I have, it's not going to be satisfied by me traveling around or trying to find, you know, the right boyfriend or whatever mm -hmm. it might be. There is some kind of longing going on here that I just need to sit with until I find the source of it. And that's what I've been doing ever since, you know, in a way. Wow. Yeah. So, and I, mean, I, I still fool myself. Like we all do. I still buy right. a pair of shoes or I go for yeah. chocolate, but I also know, you know, what is the source of beauty? What is the source of source of sweetness is her. Right. Mm. right. And I think that's, that's so powerful too, because even, even if, you know, if someone's listening and, and the, the, you know, they don't, the goddess and, and they don't even want to yeah. use language like this, even just the psychology of that, of mm. the, the, the yearning behind the yearning, you know mm. what I mean? Like, and, and it's interesting because now that you're saying that I, I know I've thought this before, you know, I've thought, you know, um, you know, uh, it could go for anything. Like you said, like, uh, I could see a pretty girl and be like, Ooh, she's attractive and be like, all right, well, what is it that like to is it is it lust or is it no you would just want connection you want you know you want to feel connected okay well that connection where's that and like each I, layer that you go down you're recognizing oh this surface thing wasn't even mm. the real thing like you said mm. and and you know not to say don't eat the chocolate but um what is it you want is yeah. so valuable even you know even outside you know if outside of the spiritual and religious language just like looking at the truth of where this is coming from and when you say it it hits with me because i'm like oh i think i was going down one layer i think i was like i got it because it's not this it's this and i was like oh no i think there's more <laughs> layers so now i get to like go sit with that and be like yeah. oh no which is so good i didn't i didn't realize i I peeled the first layer off i thought i was done it really save us a lot of trouble and time and energy mm -hmm. to just be conscious about why we're doing what we're doing right and so this doesn't even have to be a devotional practice it can just be a contemplative practice mm -hmm. right what, what is it that i really want what is it that i'm i think i'm gonna get <laughs> when i get what i want right so yeah yeah what is it i think i'm gonna get when i get what i want or what I, that's so good <laughs> That's, I mean, it, it's almost one of those things that's so good. It's scary. Cause now I have to walk out into the world knowing that. Yeah. <laughs> and like when I start thinking it, I'll be like, Oh no, now I know it's one of those things. Once you open that door, you don't get to close it again. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's a very powerful statement. Uh, wow. I really like that. Um, so, I mean, we're, we got a little bit of time left, but I, I usually uh, ask the same two questions at the end of the podcast. Um, we got about 15 minutes, so we're not rushing, but we can let these take us wherever they do. Um, one of the things is, you know, I started this because I like to share things that I find interesting or valuable with people, you know, whether it's a, hey, check out this song or check out this book or whatever. Um, and I, I feel like you you might have a couple good answers for this. So if you were to just suggest something to people, just to say, hey, and it might be, hey, this worked for me, try this, or just any, it could be a practice, a song, a, a book, uh, a, anything at all. Um, what would you suggest to people? Oh, my goodness. Uh oh. <laughs> you know, as a teacher, um, I 
I always try to be conscious about the fact that different people need so many different things, mm -hmm. right? And to not do what we're doing at this moment to just mm -hmm. say, well, what one thing that will fit everybody, right? Um, because that's that's normally not the case. And I don't know who's listening, you know, uh, how they're right. going to use this. I get a little, you know, self-conscious. Mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to books, you know, I have too many books and I, I you know, there's, I, I can't uh, recommend one single book except for my own book, of course. Right. Well, we should, you know what, we yeah, should absolutely do that. But when it comes to yogic practice and for people that just want to start a really simple sadhana, I think to just get some kind of movement into your daily life, you know, whether it's just taking a walk or doing, you know, some spinal movements or whatever, you know, dance practice, whatever feels good to you. Um, that is part of the purification pra practice of getting into yoga. Right? And then when it comes to a seated meditation, I would really recommend people to start with a sadhana for Ganesh. And I know that the spiritual journey is rarely linear, you know, in the way that you start with a proper thing. For me, what happened is that I came to Ganesha, you know, many, many years into my practice. Uh, and that not until then I could see the value of it. But I I see why it is recommend, recommended in the traditions that you start with Ganesha if you eventually want to have a practice for the goddess Kundalini, right? Mm -hmm. And so you're starting with the Vija Mantra. The Vija Mantra is a seed mantra. You probably know this and your listeners as well. So that the Vija Mantra, the seed mantra doesn't mean anything. It doesn't have a translation, but it holds the full potential for a certain wisdom quality. In this case, Ganesha. And so the Vija Mantra for Ganesha is gum. Uh, sometimes very nasalized, like a gong almost. Om gam ganapataye namha. So basically reverence to Ganesha, who is the remover of obstacles. So if you are a person that has a hard time getting into a daily sadhana, sticking with a practice, sticking with discipline, you know, Ganesha is really the wisdom quality for you because not only will he remove the obstacles for your practice, but he's also such a playful, humorous, allowing character, you know? And I remember one time when I did sadhana for Ganesha, and I had done a kind of, um, I had done a sadhana for Saraswati before. And, you know, Saraswati is very much a goddess of perfection. So she was kind of strict on me. So I did one month without sugar and I did all kinds of practices for her. And then when I moved into the sadhana for Ganesha, you know, Ganesha is kind of shabby, <laughs> kind of a lot like. And so I was, I was, um, I had saved a piece of chocolate cake because it, it had been my mother's birthday and I didn't eat it for that month. So I'd saved it in the freezer and then I took it out and I started eating it. And I was kind of enjoying it, kind of not enjoying it because I had been without sugar for months. I didn't really have any craving. And I could hear Ganesha inside of me going, go ahead, eat it. But are you really enjoying it? Right. Mm -hmm. You know, that mischievous, you know, um, trickster quality in a way mm -hmm. you're saying you know go ahead do whatever you want but is this really what you want right mm -hmm. are you really enjoying it so Ganesha is, is um lovely to work with because he's not so hard on you he's really basic but, mm -hmm. but very very lovely and faithful and will get you on the right track you know he's also you know wisdom quality connected to writing, connected to wisdom, connected to, you know, big ears, the great hearing, you know, mm -hmm. um, 
and in a way connected to saving your energy. You know, you probably heard the story about him and his brother, uh, Kartikeya, also known as Skanda. Uh, they're racing around the universe three times, you know, and the one that goes the fastest around the universe will get a certain role, which is to be the, the deity that is invoked before all other deities and the mantra that is, that is invoked before all other mantras. And so Skanda, of course, sits out and he's really fast riding on his peacock. And Ganesha instead to sit down, open up his great ears. And by the time Skanda is basically done uh, circumambulating the universe three times, Ganesha just opens his big eyes and he stands up and he circumambulates his parents three times and he bows to them. And so he wins the contest because his parents are, of course, Shiva and Shakti, consciousness and energy or consciousness and creative capacity. And so he has this, this capacity to get the work done without getting tired. Mm. <laughs> and it's not because he's lazy. It's because he's highly efficient. Mm. You know, so when it comes to doing sadhana or doing whatever in the world actually without you know losing your energy to just be very efficient to kind of listen before you act or to engage in effortless action Ganesha is really the wisdom quality for you so I would say you know maybe sit down for 10 minutes and first you can repeat loudly Om Gam Namaha, Om Gam Namaha, Om Gam you can sing it or you can just repeat it out loud and then when it feels natural, you start repeating it quietly on the inside. And maybe after a little while, you're just stuck with the Bija Mantra, the gum, gum, gum. And then maybe it disappears altogether and you're just seated in silence. But then if you have a really busy mind, maybe you will pick up the mantra and maybe you will say it out loud again. And then after 10 minutes or however long you feel like seated, you're done. And if you can do that, on a daily basis for 30 or 40 days. I mean, you're on the way to Shakti, right? That's 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 really amazing. And I, I like that because it speaks also to the earlier when I, I mentioned how intimidating stuff could be, you know, or like people who want some of the freedom, like we said, the freedom before the discipline. This kind of melds both of those worlds a little bit. There's some a lot, there's some softness to it but also discipline in it. So yeah. I, I, I like that we kind of landed back on that because it, it helps with some of the earlier stuff. Um, that, that's a great, um, such a good answer. <laughs> that's like one of my favorites that we've had on the podcast, actually. So we will finish up with, with this question then. Um, and that is, I, I, I came up with this question based on the, the story of Peter Pan. <laughs> who uh, has i know you know okay here we go let's see if this bombs totally <laughs> so uh the the lost boys are in neverland and in neverland they get their pixie dust and they think of a happy thought and the happy thought is what elevates them it's what lifts them up it's what at any time can kind of like i said just elevate them above and what would your happy thought be what is the thing that makes you lighter, that fills you up? Well, it's my kids, of course. Of course, mm. my kids are also my greatest headache. Mm. <laughs> so uh, my kids and my partner, who is a great sport, who is the reason that I can do my PhD for the moment, you know, because mm. he's helping me out with my kids. And and of course, the goddess. 
the goddesses behind and around and inside of all of that. So the thought of the goddess is what keeps me going. And whenever, you know, I'm, I'm lacking sweetness or I'm lacking motivation, I ask her to come back into my life, you know, because I know that that is, that is what adds, you know, meaning, meaningfulness for me. Wow. Yeah, that, that is very good. Um, and I, I like that it's all together. You know, we, we just, you know, your kids, your partner, even mentioning your academic pursuits saying the goddess are all kind of mm. one thing that is, is to, to put it lightly, the happy thought, you yeah. know, I, I love that. It's all kind of saturated in that same devotional thing. Like you said earlier, it's all, it's all kind of soaking in, in a devotional perspective, which is not easy to do, but valuable, it seems. Yeah, um, I used to say that I was a missionary for the goddess. And mm -hmm. I think I still am, you know, even in complicated ways, you know, it's not always as easy that you're just going around, you know, preaching the word of the divine mother. You right. might be doing some really um, tricky academic stuff. Right. At the same time, feeling that there is that current under everything that you're doing and that you're not doing it for your personal career or um, a sense of ambition, but that there is something guiding. Um, and I'm, I mean, I might be fooling myself. We might all be fooling ourselves. Right. But at least then, you know, I'm happy. I'm happy fooling myself. You know what? I think that's very good. <laughs> I mean, uh, and and you've it's not fully surface level you've looked through this stuff and even if you are fooling yourself i'm happy you're fooling yourself because <laughs> <laughs> that gave us this and and all this so i appreciate it i want to definitely um mention your book because now it is in english um where where do we find that if we want to kind of dig into more of this stuff I don't know why people will be able so, to see the video, uh, mm -hmm. but here's the book. It's called Yoga and Tantra, History, Philosophy, and Mythology. Uh, it's out in English through Motilal Benarsidas. So you can order it through their website. I think it's also on Amazon. You probably mm -hmm. can, you know, just look it up online and find it. Uh, yeah. And also, of course, my online courses through Saraswati Studies. Mm -hmm. And if anybody wants to do any of the online courses, they can use the code yoga studies and they have 50% off until the end of July. Awesome. So, yeah. That's yeah. so, that's so exciting. I, I, I'm glad that we got some of this information out. I was, I was, like I said, I was a bit intimidated because you have so much information and I feel oh. like I have so little, <laughs> but uh, I, I thought, you know, similar to what you said earlier went before you came into this, you know, before I came into it, I sat with my Ramakrishna image and I said, you know, whatever information need, you know, yeah. comes out, you, it's up to you. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I, and, and this was a really lovely conversation. So thank you for inviting me. Yeah, no problem. Thank you again. And, uh, have a good day. I'll talk to you later. You too. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for listening. Remember, you are always everything. Bye.